It's called Let's Keep the Flames of Hope Alive. Never let the fires die. Let's keep the flames of hope alive. And never let the fires die. Take the lie of the Welcome to Never Let the Fires Die, the Alarm Podcast, Episode 20, The Strength Reissue. I swept the floors of all my days. I've opened doors and let the torrent. Let's talk yeah, about cool. this strength live record that comes out on Record Store Day, and it's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a real photographic audio document of that moment in time in the Alarms history when we were uh, just coming to terms with how to play and perform the Strength album and incorporate it into the Declaration material that we toured successfully for a few years before that. It was the first time we'd really gone out on the road with a mass of new material that, that people were unfamiliar with. And I think that was that show was uh, the first night where we really connected uh, with the audience uh, and the band all at the same time. Uh, it, there was nothing uh, left behind then. then. You know, Dave was at his best. He'd really come of age as a guitarist. I was learning to play some songs without the guitar and, and just a microphone and let the band play the music and, and I could concentrate on what was in front of us, which was an absolute wall of alarm fans at Boston. <laughs> this this is a, uh, Boston. Where was the Orpheum Theatre in Boston? Yeah, and I think the Orpheum was a, was um, an amazing... You know, a lot, a lot of the alarms live music, when you think about it, has come from Boston, electric folklore... Um, the B-sides for the Spirit of 76 single, which were amazing, were drawn from this concert recording. And, uh, it and was, that was, um, that, those consisted of 68 Guns, D-side, Knocking on Heaven's Door, correct? Yeah, and Where Were You Hiding When the Storm Broke. Oh, also, Where Were You Hiding When the Storm Broke, too. There was a version of Howling Wind that ended up on the um, Live for Life IRS Records compilation right. of it.
right. That should have been yeah. your bad. That's my opinion. I think I wrote that here. That should have been your your live, um, you know, jettison yeah. superstardom. Yeah, well, we'll be playing it this weekend at a gathering in New York. And uh, it, it's a really, it's got that pulse, that sequential um, bass guitar punch going through it, which, which lo- locked everything down so the band could move around that static point of content and I think that the, the fact that there was a fixed point of reference in the the sequencer it meant the band could move sideways around it and it just emphasized the power and you I've got to remember that's that the modern alarm is sort of built on that same foundation at that point in the set when we play it now no one's playing bass there's two guitars going it's a really authentic representation of the origins of the band and that's that that moment that, that Howlin' Wind used to bring to those early alarm shows, which is always massive when we played it at festivals or stadiums, when we played it with Queen at Wembley. They, that was the high point of the concert. It really seemed to seep right through to the far corners of the stadium. It was the biggest stadium rock we probably ever made, to be honest. Um, and that's the modern alarm is built on that moment, really. So when I hear that, I think, oh, yeah. That, that's where we're at now. You know, you kind of discovered at the end of that, of Declaration, maybe what was the future. And not, a, not I mean, and maybe it was, a, it was a difficult future to get your head around at the time, I guess. Um, yeah, because when, when, when Alan Shatlock brought that pulse to Howling Wind, the version that we had live was very different. And it was all guitars, bass and drums and, and, and uh, a lot of movement in the song. And, and Alan just locked it into that sequential thing. And he always said he wasn't trying to record the alarm as we were at Declaration. He was trying to record the alarm that we could become. And, and, and so he projected us into the future with Declaration. And I think we realised that to a degree with strength. Because Knife Edge, which is also on the Live 85 album, that had a sequential pulse running through it as well, along with a bass guitar. But uh, that was derived from the same source of um, creativity. Yeah, I'd say that, you know, to a lesser extent, a song like The Day the Ravens Left the Tower, not exactly the same, but has has a feel um, that it's a spiritual cousin to that song. Yeah, I think so. I remember the first time we ever played that at a sound check was uh, when we were on tour with U2 in Europe. uh, We were playing with them in Brussels and in... in, in, um, at the Forest National, I think it was, is the venue. And uh, I remember starting up the little slow three-string chord that starts the uh, the song off. And it's very haunting. And then you've got Dave's counterpoint coming in behind it. And I can remember Bono running onto the stage going, before I'd even open my mouth to sing, saying, what's this? You know, <laughs> really captivated by it. And, uh, and, I, and again, I think it's it's one of those songs that's got got um, a strong centre running through it, and that that little picking guitar part anchors the whole song and allows the band as individuals to uh, come forward. You know, Nigel's playing Hot Rods, the kind of sound that that Oasis made famous with uh, Wonderwall years and years later. Nigel was playing that, that kind of drum pattern on Day the Ravens Left the Tower, and that was, in some ways, probably one of his most adventurous ever uh, drum tracks. Some brilliant drumming on, on Day the Ravens Left the Tower, because they didn't just play the beat. So it was the same with Dave. He didn't just play the rhythm of the song or, or the guitar riff. 
he amplified, Nigel exemplified the lyrical content and, and they um, highlighted the story that was going on in the lyrics and the drama that was in the lyrics. And that's, again, I say with that strength album particularly and that strength tour, that was when the alarm was really at its best as a cohesive unit all pulling together or all pushing each other towards the same creative goal. And let's talk about, I know this is about the live record that comes out on Saturday. Hopefully this podcast will be out just before that <laughs> on Friday. That's the goal anyway. Um, I'm sure it will, Steve. So, uh, <laughs> um, but the Strength re-release, uh, let's talk about that really quick. Because the the main album that that was remastered, it sounds better than it's ever sounded before. And, and my favorite track, again, is... Now the day the Ravens left the tower, I don't know exactly why it's it is it popped it pops out. Um, maybe because I never concentrated it on before. You know, I just I want something new. But the whole album, it, you know, what what went into remixing that that makes it sound so you know fresh and alive now. Yeah, well, I think what what, what you're hearing with the remastering of Strength is that. Um, it, it, the strength of one of the first albums it, it, on the back of the cover it had recorded digitally yep. written on it that's right and it was it was recorded digitally and 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 then it was really downgraded to to be a cd and a, an lp it had to go through the audio uh, mastering techniques that, uh, that weren't as advanced as they are today so i think um the, the fact that we had these superb 24-bit masters that had never really been heard before that's what i was able to pull out of the archive for this reissue so you're getting a really pure sound as you heard it in the studio and uh, um 80s technology wasn't as advanced as it is now to to get that sound forward to the listener and so you're actually hearing um the the first generation sound that we would have all heard in the studio that is actually better now than the, the mastering and the, and the way we could um, share our music in the 80s, which was mainly LP-led when 85 came around. Um, strength was an LP. There, there was no CDs, didn't really come along till either Hurricane uh, for the alarm. So the mastering that you would have ever heard Strength up until this day, really, apart from the 2000 reissue, is, is from an analogue source, which is a copy of a copy of the master. So this uh, strength reissue is, is pure, straight from the, the source of the recordings as they were mixed and created by um, ourselves and Nigel Luby and Mike Harlett, the production team. I remember back when I saw you guys the first time at Cal State Fullerton, my sister going and chatting up Nigel Luby in the sound booth. And <laughs> I don't know exactly what she was doing at the time, but... Um, but I just remember the name Nigel Luby as, um, you know, all through my, you know, alarm fandom when I was a kid, you know, wondering if he was the guy who was making you guys sound the way you <laughs> sounded live. So if he, he was, was the, the, the magician. He, he certainly was. Sadly, Nigel's no longer with us. And oh. uh, when he passed away, um, he had his family donate all his live soundboard tapes to me and uh, some of his outtakes in the studio. So it's a real treasure trove of material. And um, Nigel was very uh, switched on in terms of, and he was very in sync with what we were trying to do as a band. He, again, he, he was another guy who's older than us, um, and he'd come from a background of working with Yes, the, the prog band. Oh, yeah. And he'd been uh, an out front engineer for them. 
and he came to work with the alarm and, and he brought a, a sort of musicality with him. When we were in the studio doing the demos, we just felt very comfortable in his presence. Uh, I, I, we'd met him because I, I ended up uh, needing to rent a room to stay in London while we were making the Strength album. And, uh, and I ended up renting a room off Nigel Luby and his wife. And, uh, and then Nigel started coming down to some of the rehearsals and he got on the soundboard and he immediately made the sound come alive. We did the demos with him and we're so pleased with the demos. We asked him to record the whole album. That was intrinsic to our, our, our uh, the working with Mike Howlett that he agreed to work with, with uh, Nigel because we felt comfortable with him. And, and all, all, the, all the outtakes here on the Strength Remastered are really down to Nigel. We were just having fun in the studio, jamming along. And Nigel was the one, he knew we were hot to trot, as he said, and he hit, he switched record, and that's how we ended up with those, you know, really cool, fun recordings of us playing Deep Purple and Golden Earring and T-Rex in the studio. That's all down to Nigel and his um, perception. Yeah, I mean, the the um, the B-sides uh, of this of the strength collection here are pretty extensive. Stuff like Black Side of Fortune uh, that never went anywhere but sounds fantastic on the... The demos, yeah. The demo, yeah. strongly about the album that would have been called Absolute Reality if we hadn't uh, if we'd gone on to work with Jimmy Iovine as, as originally planned but that never came about so we just we stuck our necks out and said let's let's do it with Nigel and and you know there's a couple of songs in there Black Side of Fortune and uh, Sons of Divorce Oh I'm looking for love Which 
probably would have made the record if if we carried on working with Jimmy Iovine, but um, probably majority we, too probably would have made that record as well. Yeah, right? that's right. That's another one. And and we went out on the tour um, on the Absolute tour, and that's when the song Strength and Spirit of '76 came into being during that touring period. And, and they they knocked a couple of the songs out of the contention, and uh, and and sadly we never really got round to recording uh, Black Side of Fortune. But I think the demo sounds amazing anyway, especially now they're mastered and and um, we're hearing them from first generation tapes rather than bootleg quality demos which might have been sent to a producer and then found their way into the public domain years later. Right. You know, I know it's 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 fun to speculate that, you know, what would have happened in Jimmy Ivine and, and uh, Black Side of Fortune and Sons of Divorce and that stuff, but, you know, it may be in hindsight better about what did happen because the strength record sounds so good in comparison. You know, the songs that made it on it, although I will say I wish Absolute Reality was on the UK version, but um, but I understand why it was not. It sounds so great. I, I think maybe that un- those those unfortunate losses led to a lot of great gains that you had. Without a doubt, you know, what would the alarm perception be without songs like Strength and Spirit of 76? I know that they're omnipresent uh, a lot of the time when we play and, and they can get taken for granted, but they're still, they're such cornerstones uh, to, to what the alarm is all about. And, uh, you know, the, the, the alarm strength album would have been I think even Eddie McDonald said it in the sleeve notes that he he always felt like strength had the best songs of all the records we made and I agree with him and it sounds the best too yeah no I think it's interesting because to me uh, when I was listening back in years gone by I always thought it was time stamped more to the 80s than it actually is when Mm, I heard the new remasters from from the real source um, that uh, I I was you know when, when, when we remastered in 2000 I was working from I was trying to make it as interesting as I could for the box set collection and so used slightly different mixes of some of the tracks like Walk Forever and we played around with some of the uh, different uh, mixes that oh, they're almost identical but they, they were met at that point they were really from the, the masters that led to the original cuts where, whereas strength this time I went back to the, the masters before they were compiled I went back to the individual mix tapes and pulled them up individually because when they were compiled they were going down a generation to be to be mastered that's how it worked whereas I, I was from the actual first generation this time and I think there's a a certain amount of clarity there that makes sense of the whole thing and and because it's mastered with modern ears Pete Marley mastered you know draws out the guitars that more rather than the high end Say when you're dead. 
down and fight the hardest. Some tighten the belt while others let go. Someone said, You don't ask, you don't receive. Someone showed me that written down in the back of a book. And as I reach out and see my life unfold, I tell you this because I truly believe in it. Ask me. when you were mastering in the 80s you were mastering for a record and you you added top end you know brightness to it because you knew when when the record was pressed into the plastic it would that that process dulled the music slightly so you you overcompensated by adding top end to your mastering and so we were able to compensate that this in this day and age take that brightness out and and, and bring out the tones that that where you hear Dave playing at his best and you can hear Nigel's bass and uh, Nigel's drums and Eddie's bass guitar more clearly than the bells and whistles that we're known for in the 80s that were often put in to attract radio producers' ears. <laughs> right, because it needed yeah. to sound, the, the radio guys needed to find something that sounded like the last song and would sound like the next song and not and not sound so different that they That's would, it. you know, they would, they would get in trouble for playing it. But I think the only mashup I wish that happened was I would like to hear how Tony Visconti would have produced these songs. Yeah, well, I think when you when you hear what Tony did with Change, he he just he really recorded as as a live band in the studio, kept it very simple. And I, I was talking about this the other day with a Swedish uh, podcast, but um, I, I, I I find that um, when we came to make Change, we had some options of production uh, routes to go down, and, and we we nearly worked with the guys. I can't remember their names now, but they were they were the production team behind Faith No More. And for for the alarm, it was the first time we met people who could help us to go forward who were actually younger than ourselves. Up to that point in our history, we'd always been the young guys in the room when we met the A&R man, the manager, the right. record producer. All of a sudden, we had some guys coming into our room who were younger than us. And they, their focus on the change album wasn't on the songs we thought were the contenders. They were more interested in things like Breaking Point and How the Mighty Fall. That was where they were coming from as the big songs. And I like those songs. I, I, yeah. I somewhat agree that those those are great songs. Now, but Falling Down the River was a huge hit, right? Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it was it, it was a huge hit, but it, again, as we've talked many times, you and I, Steve, it, it took us out of the alternative. Uh, it made us sound hit. like much more of a mainstream band, and I think we worked with them. And Tony made us sound mainstream and very acceptable as a, a clean-sounding rock band, whereas I think at that point we probably needed to mess it all up and muddy the waters a little bit and find a way to attack the 90s together. Uh, yeah, and, and Breaking Point is one of my favorites. I mean, it really yeah. is a great song. And in the morning 
Do you remember the night? Put on dark sunglasses to shut out the lights. Shut out the pain, shut out the red in your eyes you hide. Every time you look in the mirror, how do you live with your life? The breaking point Just one step away Great track, and I, I, I think you know we, we re- that was really recorded almost as a B side. You know, the, when you hear the demos, uh, and that'll probably come along at some point in the future when we reissue uh, Change. Um, the demos and the album are not that dissimilar. There's not a lot of movement from the demos to the album. They're just recorded better with real drums rather than drum machines, but pr- pretty much they stay the same. And I sometimes think if we work with younger producers, they might have really pushed us on into another realm, which some of those songs were hinting at. And uh, possibly could have created a, um, a more solid foundation for more years for the original lineup to have stayed together. You know, when, when you hear uh, the last two records, are, songs on the record are Rivers to Cross and then New South Wales, and they're, they're hinting at something completely different than you get from the opening cuts of some Working Man Blues, which are really rootsy rock and roll records. Whereas when we were, you know, and as are um, Rivers Across and, and New South Wales in their own way as well, but they're, they're from a different genre of music. So you, you do get a massive shift in change, as the song title says and the album title defines in that record. You go from one extreme to another. And, you know, the world was changing all around us at that time. The Berlin Wall, there was the, the whole lot of things happening in New York as they are now. So it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting record to go back and look to and I'll, I'll, I'll probably start that journey into the heart of that record this, this weekend at the gathering then <laughs> when I play the songs on the Friday night well you know I mean we got far off track the problem is I could do this for hours and go far off track and talk about everything because <laughs> it's so much That's fun what the podcast is all about Steve it, 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 let's swing it back to strength for a sec so the, so the reissues are out you've got this live record that is coming out on record store day which is this Saturday uh, a document of a particular place and time for the alarm. And I have to say, the fourth disc to me is probably the fourth side. Sorry. Um, yeah. Probably the most amazing of this entire set. I don't think I've heard the chant has just begun on a record before like this. The chant plays to the strengths of this recording. Yeah, well, it, it's um, mixed to how we played that night. And, it, and, you know, the audience sound amazing. The band sounds great. But at times, um, you know, we were, we were getting so into the performance that maybe, you know, our playing was going off a little bit and some of the guitars had to be ducked for the tuning and things like that. And uh, interestingly, the, the B-sides that were pulled from the record were were mixed at the same time. But, but um, Dave redid his guitars for those B-sides. And that's why the, the mix, uh, uh, the guitar in the mix for the B sides of Spirit 76, which you can hear as they were uh, released on on the digital versions of the album that you can hear on Spotify and iTunes. Um, but we, to protect the integrity of the album, we stayed with the performance as was on the night with no overdubs, um, and so that's 
that's why it was mixed that way in the studio in LA after the original gig and uh, we only had time they, I think probably if we were releasing the album in 1985 or 86 we'd have redone the whole guitars for the album uh, rather than just four or five tracks as as we did at the time uh, and and we we thought oh, we'll, we'll leave the whole album intact as it is so so when when I, I did I toyed with uh, adding in the the, the B side versions into the running order of the album and replacing them but they sound a little bit too different uh-huh. and uh, and I thought well you've still got them they're still there on the digital versions as as they were released but this you get the whole feel of the album and and I, and I have to respect that some people they don't want pure clean in tune uh, you know tidied up alarm they like the rough edges they like the the energy that that was created in the dynamic of the moment and i think this is the the first real alarm record live record where it is literally the truth of how we sounded in those gigs it's honest it's straight ahead there's not one overdub at <laughs> all uh, you know with, uh, with with electric folklore that was you know taken out of sequences little tidy ups made in the studio in New York after the session but this record is pure and simply the alarm at its height in sure. 1985 with an amazing audience in Boston and that's it's historic for that reason yeah I mean this it's a doc it's definitely a document of a of a place and time and I think it also you know I'm, I'm looking at the track listing here you start off with majority yeah and again that's it's great for that because that was such a powerhouse for the alarm shows when we played it live and uh, and, and and we've never released an alarm ad with that on it I mean there's some some interesting things I mean in the middle of a uh, third light you can hear all the first world war machine gun sounds going off and I sometimes think well we'd never get away with that in a concert today no i love this, that i always love that age. when i was listening to those when i was collecting live tapes back in the 80s i loved hearing that one yeah it was it was very visual and, and bobby troman who was doing lights for us you know he he, he all the this, all the strobe lights would go off and it was really effective and, and it created a, a real drama in the set you know when, especially in those days productions were simple you know bands didn't have screens to play with then or all the kind of LED lighting that we have now you had to be creative with graffiti or with backdrops or, or with, with pure simple black and white lighting and uh, and, and that was uh, again the, the, the production we had on that tour was enhanced by that element things like that and, and, uh, and the acoustics sections where we just drop things out or come back on one by one and Dave and I'd have a little guitar harmonica battle before the stand. Oh but yes. Yeah, we're gonna, I was going to get to that but yeah you, you already. Yeah. <laughs> they're the things everybody remembers from the shows. This is one of the first shows from the Strength Tour. Yes? Yeah no. it, was, it, was, it was early that's it was November uh, the 9th um, in Boston and I think again like I said earlier in the interview it was, it was really when we just really started to realise the power of the songs we had on the Strength album it was the first time when we we knew spirit 76 was going to be something we'd be playing for the rest of our lives like blaze of glory or 68 guns we knew it was right up there with those and uh, so there was a lot of we were getting coming to terms with the power of the songs and and, and i have to say at that time 
day started to come of age as a guitarist. Uh, you actually and, say that on the record. Oh, is that right? I meant it. You know, he was. I mean, at the time, he was so good. And he, he would play right on the edge of the stage and be sweat dripping from every pore of his body. And, and I, I, you know, I, could, I remember thinking, wow, I'm going to have to step up my game to keep up with this. He was, you know, Dave was stealing the show at times. <laughs> he was that good. He, but, he know, was he, actually stealing the show somewhat back then. True. Yeah, you know, the guitar playing on Dawn Chorus, on Ravens, you know, it was sensational on strength. You know, I think the strength album really highlighted what a great guitarist Dave had within his personality. And uh, he, he was certainly at his best at that time and probably peaked when he hit the, the UCLA show. And, and you can really see how much skill. Funny enough, James Stevenson and I were listening to uh, that show the other week, you know, and, and James saying, wow, you know, Dave's playing at that point was incredible. There's so much respect for him as a guitarist at that point in history. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the bookending this with the Spirit of 86 show would, is interesting um, because this shows you guys trying to figure out, like, what actually is going to come next. And Spirit of 86, with your short, you know, you only had, what, uh, 75 minutes or whatever to play. You really had to make some tough decisions about what to leave out. And it shows really what you decided was the point of the band at the time. Because here you've got One Step Closer to Home, the full band version as well, which I think this is the only time that that would came on a, a live record as well, right? As, as far as I can remember today, right, that's, that's uh, you know, I think it's been on a few bootlegs, but that's really the first time, apart from the Strength remastering, where you hear the, the electric version of One Step Close to Home as, as, as it was defined and played by the whole band, yeah. This man here is one of the fastest developing guitarists in the world right now. This is Dave Sharp. How you doing? This is going out on the radio. How you doing? This is called One Step Closer to Home.
Yeah, it's great. And then after that is Third Light, which you described, which, by the way, is is amazing. Like, that's... I, I wanted to say that One Step Closer to Home was the highlight of Side 2, but I think Third Light is. First light, the saw you. Second light took half away. Third light, we pull our trigger on a gun. started the band that was one of the first songs we played that we thought oh wow we've got something here this is this is way ahead of what 17 was by a country mile and uh and it was it was always a great delivery from eddie and uh you know and, and and the interplay between the guitars and nigel you know that was where the band was really at it very interesting at that time because we weren't set up like other bands there wasn't a traditional um, bass player in the band everyone could play guitar and wanted to be guitarists and and, and I play I'm playing bass on on, on um, third light and Eddie and Dave are playing guitars and I think it's me playing um, electric on, on one step close to home you know and Dave because <laughs> Dave was playing acoustic so we were really swapping around all the time and uh, and getting up to all sorts and uh, it it was, uh, it, it, you know, that the interplay and the call and response from the drums and the guitars. That again, I, uh, I can't hasten to uh, emphasise enough how, how much we were working together as a unit on the song arrangements. And there was, there was no politics of it's my song, I get to sing it, or I'm playing guitar. It was let's just do what's best of the music at all times, and, and uh, that's when we were. The alarm was at its most powerful. And I think no, no better is that shown than in the second half of 68 Guns on this side of the record which it may be the definitive sort of arrangement of that song being played live that I've ever heard. In the city of Boston, Massachusetts... Down in the subway, can I hear that whisper? 
Through all the rage and glory of the years We never once thought of the fears for what we do For nothing lasts forever It's all they seem to tell you when you're with them But I don't believe it No, I don't believe it Again, that, that was a song that was really coming of age at that point. You know, and it's probably at its freshest at that point for everyone. And it was always a, a great song to for any band to have a song like that in your set. You can't go wrong. It, it, you know, even when we play it to this very day, we just played three sold out gigs in in Norway, and the fans went mad for that one. You know, that's that's a big song no matter where we go around the world. And but at that point, it had really come into its own. Then uh, as as beyond just being the song that was played on the radio I mean that's where it gets its uh, legacy from you, you still hear it on the radio but it's only a, a two and a half minute verse chorus verse chorus guitar solo chorus song right. but live it, it's got a whole drama in the middle section and, uh, that uh, is is so good it always uh, elevates it that song oh yeah so on side four we've got the stand which you described you know Dave does in some intros and you do a harmonica in- intro which I also remember from the time really thinking was cool the stand plus bound for glory here that's that's um I, tr- I wanted to see how long it was but it feels like it's half the side of this record <laughs> yeah it's i don't i think when i heard it back myself i, I thought wow was that was that a mistake or was it it, it was it was so uh, off the cuff without a doubt and i, I think
Eddie who led us into that I think I was finishing the song and, and I think Eddie must have I was probably almost halfway off the stage thinking that's the end of that, that part of the set and, and then I think Eddie started up Bound for Glory and, and that, again it just shows you that, that things could have happened from any quarter of the stage at that point and in that moment you can hear the band is learning how to play in front of so many people learning how to cope with um, expectation at, with, with the fact that people are coming to see your shows you know knowing and wanting to be blown away and you've got to deliver night after night after night when you're on these long tours hardly any sleep doing radios in the morning sound checks interviews and then you've still got to get on stage and deliver and uh, you can really hear the band is in its element is, is thriving in that environment Take this badge off of me I can't use it anymore It's getting time to die to see I feel like I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Mama put my guns in the When we were uh, releasing the strength album. Uh, and we'd been on the absolute tour. We played Knocking on Heaven's Door quite a few times, and, and we said, obviously it's played on Live '85 from Boston. And um, the, the the guys who were promoting our record, certainly in the UK, at MCA uh, as the distribution company, they were saying, "Mike, you really should record Knocking on Heaven's Door. Your version is amazing, and it would be a huge record." And we were thinking, "No, we can't do a cover version. Let's stick to our, our principles." And uh, <laughs> lo and behold, Guns N' Roses do a cover. It's a massive hit. <laughs> now, their yeah. version is closer to your arrangement than Bob Dylan's arrangement. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, you know, I have to say, we, we were, you know, Knocking on Heaven's Door gets played a lot of, by a lot of people. But we were one of the first bands that really brought it into the live arena. And before we played it with you 2 whenever we played with the Bell Stars or the, the Beat, uh, any any band that we had any contact with, Boomtown Rats, and, and someone would say, let's do a song together, we'd say, let's do Knocking on Heaven's Door because it's easy three chords you can't go wrong and uh, and and so I think that the legend of it spilled out and I don't know why Guns N' Roses chose to do it and do it in the way they did um, maybe they have some association with somebody who said hey the alarm do this cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door which which they never recorded you should have a go at it yourselves who knows I, I'll have to ask Duff McKagan the next time I see him it could be I mean it, you know I, I want to make a connection that's probably not there but it did seem weird to me because after 
after I had never heard the original before I heard yours, and it sounds yours sounds I'm not gonna say nothing like the original, but very different. Um, oh yeah, it is absolutely and, different. Yeah, and you know, and, and even you two when they used to do it, you know, people, we we stopped doing it because you two carried on doing it after we taught them how to play it, and everyone thought we were copying you two. Right? <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. The story so of like, many lives at this stuff. point, I think. But it's, it's one of those songs that gets passed on, and uh, and you know, I think I've got a feeling that in in actual truth, I think you two might have played Heaven's Door really early in their career with with, with the likes of Pete Wiley from the Mighty War coming on stage. So you know, no, no one could really lay claim to who played it first. It's the same with Rocking in the Free World. You know, we did play it before Neil Young and Big Country did it, and Pearl Jam. And it's just one of those songs. That everybody plays and so yeah i mean okay. i mean it's essentially it's bob dylan's song you know sour grapes for me because i would have rather your guys version get more popular than guns and roses version but obviously that's what happened that's life <laughs> so so this record because record store day you you'll be in new york city on record store day yeah could be playing at generation records in in the village at 1 p.m it's, it's not far to, it's five five six minute walk from irving plaza where we're going to be playing that night and throughout the weekend and lots of fans coming over from the UK to spend the weekend with us in New York and people coming from all over the USA and I think the fact that we're doing the record store day at the same weekend the Gavin is just enhancing the excitement and the and the anticipation for the events and uh, I, I'm just going to be playing at the store myself because I, I'm the only person that plays on Live 85 who's connected right. to the alarm uh, in, in the band at the moment in time so it just felt right that I should go down and, and uh, be the one to sign the records uh, we're doing a live uh, broadcast from Sirius XM on Friday morning at 9 o'clock Eastern Time and that's going out all across the USA and it gets played at 10 o'clock on the Pacific Coastal Time so you'll be able to hear it Steve oh, yeah, cool. it's we're on Feedback Channel 106 with Sirius XM and we'll be playing three songs live uh, which get broadcast right across America so it's really exciting, and uh, you know we've got the summer tour coming up as well as over as uh, around about forty dates going to take us right across the USA. Right, is, uh, and so that is that you. There's no LA gathering this year, right? No, because because uh, we just didn't have time, and, and, and we got um, uh, asked to play by Richard Blade, the Sirius XM DJ, to play at the Microsoft Theatre. Right. And uh, yeah, we, we again, Richard has been such a supporter of the band that we we couldn't say no and, and it's like a top of the pops type gig it's like something we would have done in 1983 so uh, I think it's really interesting to play with some of those bands we we, we played at Richard's behest a, a, a festival called uh, Like Totally in Huntington Beach um, to, uh, just over a year ago um, around the time of the LA gathering and I wasn't expecting a lot from that gig but we absolutely blew the place to bits and I think that's the reason why we sold out the gigs in San Diego and it, in, in San Juan Capistrano and so I think playing the Microsoft Theatre is a great opportunity like Top of the Pops was for the band yeah I mean your we're job is to blow everyone away there I mean that's really yeah, what you gonna, have to do so we're going to play um, in front of I'm 6, giving you a, a job to do and it's yeah we're going to we're going to play in front of 6,000 people and we're going to own the place by the time we finish <laughs> there I can tell you and, and it's great because it, it, it builds our audience it takes us into the places where people don't expect to see us like when we did the Vans Walk Tour this is just part of rebuilding the connections that we've in, uh, been fortunate to create throughout the history of the band, but to remake some of those connections that help build and ground us for the future. So it's great. So we couldn't do other shows too close to that in L.A. Yeah, no, I, I figured that's exactly what the reason was. 
Yeah, look, it's a whole, the whole world is changing. You know, we've got to, when we come on the Sigma Tour in the summer, we're, we're going to be running a massive uh, social media campaign. We're going to be doing some songs live every night on the internet. We're going to have um, a host on the stage uh, inter- interacting with the audience who aren't even at the gig who can send in tweets and messages or you can tweet from the, this, the floor of the auditorium and let's, let us know where you've come from and we can acknowledge that. that we, we've got a mass of ideas that we're looking at to explore on this tour because no, nobody knows where, where your audience is these days. It used to be make a song, get it played on the radio. Well, that, that's gone, you know, so now it's a whole new frontier like it was in 1991 when the internet had arrived and we, we how do we embrace that? We don't know. We're going to make some mistakes. We're going <laughs> to figure it out. Yeah, we've got to figure it out and we're going to, we're going to find some happy accidents that are going to propel as into the future so who knows what's going to happen on the Sigma Tour it's going to be so exciting uh, you know we've got pre-show events where people can come in and see an acoustic show before the tour they can ask some questions about the album they can do have their own podcast if they like we're going to be broadcasting a lot of things live and um, using all the social media platforms and others that, and, and some that, that you think are only static platforms We'll be working on those to make them live and exciting on the days. So we're really, I'm really enthused about how uh, our music can be transmitted and, and communicated in this day and age. And, and it's a level playing field now. We can be as, as good and as ambitious as we want to be, but and that requires a lot of hard work and, and a lot of effort. And I've got the energy for it. I'm, you know, past the milestone age this year, and I, I think I need to change my Wikipedia and put it back a few years. <laughs> Steve, can you hear me? I can hear you now. So this is our quarterly podcast. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) It it certainly is. 